You're listening to the Sourced Property Podcast. Hello and welcome to another Sourced Property Podcast. My name is Chris Kirkwood. I am the Franchise Director here at Sourced. But today we're going to be looking at property investing more from the Sourced Capital point of view. The title of today's podcast is How Your Investments and Your Risk Appetite Has Changed. How Your Investment Goals Have Changed Over a Period of Time. Because we are very lucky to have with us today one of our Sourced Capital Investors. Andrew, thank you for being here and welcome to the Source Property Podcast. It's a pleasure. This isn't actually the first time that you've been on the Source Property Podcast though, is it? Because we did a podcast maybe two and a half years ago. Something like that. Yep. So thank you very much for coming back. And what we're going to look at now is the lifetime of your investments because tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us and hopefully from that we'll see why we've asked you in to talk about this. Yes, most of my day job work has been as a business consultant and over the last 20 to 30 years most of it's been in developing countries. So I've been helping to put together development aid projects for aid agencies um, and my main client has been the World Bank in Washington. And I've been very fortunate. I've worked in over 40 different countries around the world. So I've um, had a wide experience in that. So that's, that's essentially been my day job, not really directly involved with finance. So looking at your history in investments, when did you start investing, not necessarily in property, but your, your investment journey, when did that start? Oh, I think um, when my mother got quite old and realised that she she was no longer, well, probably capable of looking after her investments anymore, and and said, "Would you do it under power of attorney?" So I did, and it became fascinating to me. I mean, she had a whole load of unit trusts, as they did in those days, mainly, and and I realised that that didn't make an awful lot of sense to me. So I, I switched quite a lot of them to uh, direct equity investments and also the use of investment trusts, which seemed to be to, a, a good idea as well. But it, it caught my imagination. And then as time went on, I got more and more involved. I mean, she'd basically given it over to an investment manager who charged a lot of money to do it for her. And then there was the unit trust fees on top of that. And mm. by the time the two of them had taken their cut, there was very little left for her. So uh, over time, I got more into actually directly in, involved in it. And then, you know, I started to build up my own capital and started to, to do it for myself as well. So it really started with unit trusts and, and then equities. Out of interest, do you know whether your mother knew the person that had arranged the unit trusts for her, mm-hmm. whether they, they knew them or whether I think she'd gone was, to them on a professional capacity? No, I think it was a golf club connection. Right, OK. I'm yeah, afraid, interesting. Yes. Right. Uh, because, you know, she... She didn't pretend to have any real know-how mm. on this. And, and either that or it was a good friend of hers who was also her solicitor. I think he was also involved, yes. Very familiar circumstance. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, so when you started managing the unit trust, A, did you have any pushback from your mother when she was aware that we, what you were doing and that you were changing these th- the, the unit trust? No, she very much left it to me. Right. Uh, and, and as long as you know, it, it kind of made sense to her and, and that the results were you know, either in line or slightly better than the way the market was going, then she was comfortable with that. Yeah, it was okay. So before you were taking risks with your own with your yes. own pot, because yes. all investment is a risk, right? Yes. Before you started taking risks with that, you were actually very fortunate to have already dipped your toe in the water and already right. done a lot of education around what, yes. what the, the options were for you. Yeah. And then it, it shifted from there 
and I started to get interested in smaller com companies, mainly on the AIM market, the secondary market. And the, the attraction there was that I could actually start to get a direct relationship with the company. So I would actually meet up with the finance director and get a flavor of what was going on. And I would limit myself to five to 10 companies, that's all, so that I could actually really focus down deeply. So it changed quite a lot over time mm. from a whole range of unit trusts with an enormous spread where you were basically aping mm. the market. You know, it was like a tracker really, although trackers hadn't been invented by then, yeah. to a very different approach where, you know, my view is that there is a balance between having too few and having too many investments. So if you have too few, you haven't diversified your risk enough. But if you have too many, you know, your 10th investment is going to be way, way worse than your fifth best investment. Mm. So what's the right number? And I looked at some mathematics a long time ago, which, which was saying that, you know, between five and 10 seems to me mathematically about the right balance there. So that's what I aimed for. So looking at the investments you were making through yeah. AIM and, and getting to know the finance director, yeah. were you then working with the company to uplift the value of the company no. to then increase your investments? No, because they were all quoted companies. Right. So I, I couldn't do that and it wasn't appropriate. But what it did mean was that I had you know, a decent amount of information about what was going on and what the opportunities were. Um, you know, I made a few mistakes. And I mean, the other thing that came to light fairly obviously was, you know, I went through the a couple of big downturns in the market and saw my investments go down 30%, as many of us have, mm -hmm. on quoted investments, and realized, hey, you know, that you have to allow for this. If you're going to be in equities, this is part of the game. And if you happen to need the money when the market is down 30%, then you've really taken a hit. So what would you say your, when you started to invest for yourself, what was your original perspective and what was your original intention with investments? Well, I guess I wanted to make good use of my savings. Mm -hmm. You know, I was very fortunate that I, I mean, I don't think there are many people alive now still who can say this, that I've never had a mortgage. You know, I saved a lot of money and I, I made money through my investments so that I came to actually home ownership quite late in my life. In my, I think I was almost 40. And so I never had a mortgage. I mean, it must be fairly unique these days. Of the younger generation, well, certainly for somebody that's yes. owned a house, yes. because, you know, we've got generation rent and we've yeah. got a lot of people that will yes. never get to that point yes. of, of having a mortgage. But yes. certainly if you've owned a house and never had a mortgage, that is pretty unique. It's, it's incredible. I feel very lucky. And it would be impossible now. But what that means is that, you know, I then started to build up a bit of capital. And then I wanted just to do the best for it. That was essentially the objective. Maintain it and if possible, grow it. So did you consider risk at that time? You know, all you wanted to do, like you say, was, yes. was to make the best use possible out of your savings. So were you looking at how risky your investments were? Yes. When you, when you first started off, oh, no, and, I mean, and were you considerate of the returns that you could expect? When I was a newbie, I don't think I really understood that. But I think it fairly soon became clear that there is this rule, which is there's an inverse relationship between risk and return. Mm -hmm. The more risk that you take, generally speaking, all other things being equal, the more return you're going to get. And so I tried to balance it. And then... I decided that I didn't want to just stay in equities. It was kind of, you know, I got hit by a couple of bad losses. You know, overall I did okay, but even so, the experience emotionally was bad. And, and I thought, I'm going to diversify. Mm. So I went into, of all things, managed futures. 
so, okay. which is quite interesting. And, you know, I tried a bit of futures trading and, and lost money yeah. and realized the old adage, the worst enemy of the trader is his own emotions. Hmm. You yeah. know? And so I actually invested in people who had automated systems so that there was no human intervention and the buy-sell signals were done by a computer. And how did that work for you? It worked, it worked okay. But again, you know, it had the same kind of ups and downs. It's like a system, what seems to be a truth in managed futures is a system works really well until it stops working. Yeah. And then it, it goes fairly badly wrong. And, you know, that happened two or three times to me. And I thought, ah, this is... And by this time, I was getting a little bit older and I was getting towards semi-retirement. And I think that was the big change for me where I realized actually... This stuff that I'm doing, like equities and managed futures, it jumps around too much. Volatility is a slightly different in my view from risk, although people would argue that point. But it was just too volatile. And, and I realized I needed to move into something more steady so that I had an income coming in that I could reasonably rely on. So two questions following from that. So the first question is, when you discovered the machine, when you discovered the way that you could use something that was automated for a yes. period of time until it went wrong, yes. did you do well enough out of it when it was working yes. to then suffer the downturn when it stopped oh, yes. working? Yes, I mean, in net terms, I, I did reasonably well out of it. But it's the jumping, it's the volatility, it's the emotional effect of the volatility, particularly when you start to come into retirement or semi-retirement where you start thinking about a steady income. And I, being self-employed all my life, you know, I didn't have a company pension. Mm. I had my own private pension, which was in a pot. But, you know, I didn't have an income coming in from it. And before I made one. Before we get to the, the semi-retirement yes. part, looking back at when you started, you weren't as aware of the risk as no. you could have been. No. You went through a couple of downturns, yeah. which highlighted the importance of looking at the risk. Yeah. So, and the volatility. And the volatility. Yeah. So from the initial decisions to invest in what you decided to invest in, when you did become aware of the risk, yeah. how did your decisions change from that moment on? The first stage was to move from equities to managed futures. And there the idea was to diversify the risk. Mm. That was the approach. And then the second stage that I'm describing now is moving towards semi-retirement where it was really a question of, hold on, I want to radically change the volatility and I also want to be in receipt of a steadier income that I can use. So looking at that period where you were diversifying, yes. how did you manage that? Like you've mentioned, the correlation between risk and reward. Yes. Presumably you didn't go down one path of all high risk no, investments, no. you know, all guaranteed well, I tended to, I, you know, I tended to look at my, I mean, by then my equities are, were in, you know, gilt-edged and fairly secure stuff. And so I treated my managed futures as the high-risk end of the portfolio mm. and then the equities as the more stable one, recognising that when the whole market takes a bash, as it did in 2008-9, you know, I take a bash. And the bash tends to be 20 to 30%, which is painful. So, yes, over the long term everybody does okay in equities but they have to ride out this awful roller coaster mm. so at the moment right now yeah. how are you managing your portfolio in totally relation different. to risk totally okay. different so everything that i have is backed by property everything so why have you made that decision looking at the property market residential property i'm, I'm talking about 
the recognition that there's a fundamental imbalance between supply and demand, and there has been for decades, ever since the Second World War. And there's a very strong political pressure to make sure that homeowners don't lose out in negative equity. So mm. essentially, the valuation of the property market is kind of underpinned by those two factors. So the likelihood of a 30% drop in the residential property market is, in my view, famous last words, <laughs> is incredibly low compared to the risk of a 30% drop in equities or in managed futures. So they're very, very different. Not only that, but property-backed investments of certain types have the opportunity of giving me a good rate of steady rate of return, which means I have them for income. So I've gone completely. They're not all in in your kind of stuff, but everything that I've got is property backed, in some form or another. So would you say that your decision to go purely into property is a hundred percent about the risk? It depends how you define risk, because people use that word in different ways. So what I'm saying is, it's got less volatility in terms of the 30% drop, in my view, because it's underpinned by real property. Secondly, almost as important for someone who's now, you know, semi-retired or three quarters retired, (laughs) it's got steady income. If I choose the thing correctly, it's got steady income. And those two factors are very attractive. And and that's why I've gone completely into that direction. So a lot of people listening to this, listen to our podcast, because they're interested in property. and, And still a lot of people think that you know, to get into the property world, you're going to need a 25% deposit. And that's how you buy a property. And that's how you invest in property. What are some of the ways that you're aware of that that people can invest in property without A, having to own the property in the first place, or B, have that really large pot of money sitting there? So essentially, I'm not interested in owning property. Mm. That's not how I invest. So, So it's very different from your franchisees and people like that. So essentially, what I'm doing is I'm investing in loans to help property being developed, generally speaking. One of my two remaining shares is in a company called Warehouse REIT, and they own big warehouses, which they rent out to people like Amazon and John Lewis. And essentially, as an investment trust, they have to distribute 90% of their rental income (laughs) to us shareholders. That's lovely for me. So I get a nice return on that. And as it happens, that shares, obviously, during the pandemic, done extremely well. So that's an example of where I'm investing in property, but not owning the property itself. And yet still creating a regular income for yourself. Still creating a regular income for myself. And I've got an investment in a private fund, which is, happens to be Luxembourg-based, which is run by one of the big funding firms that fund property development. And again, that works in a similar way. So I've got different types of investment, but what they hold in common is that they're backed by a charge on property. So it's very different from actually buying and selling properties. So looking back at when you first started investing, if Mm. you were, were you aware of this kind of loan and did you choose not to invest in this kind of thing at that point? I I had no idea. So if you were aware of this, this kind of loan, do you think when you started your journey, you would have been interested Probably in it. Probably not. It wouldn't have been right. exciting enough for me. Right. <laughs> but, you know, at this stage in my life, I, I can do without the excitement. So if somebody's listening to this who is just thinking about investing into property, yes, or just investing in general, not necessarily yes. into property, yes. what would you highlight to them that they should be aware of that they might not currently be aware of? 
Well, I think the first thing is what we've been talking about, which is this very different, very strong distinction between investing in the ownership in property. So, for instance, being a buy-to-let landlord or somebody like that, that's one type of thing, as opposed to what I do, which is investing in the loans and getting a fixed return on the loans. I don't participate in the profit on a development. I get a fixed return agreed with the person who I'm lending to or through. So it's a fixed rate of return. So it's a very, very different thing. The other one I would consider is generally fairly high risk. You know, if you buy a property in order to develop it and make a profit on it, that's fine. You get a higher return, but you take a much more mm. risk. I'm much more secure because I get a standard return on the loan, but that's backed, generally speaking, nearly always by a first charge, first legal charge on the property itself. And then presumably, if it isn't backed by a first legal charge, let's say it's backed by a second legal charge or not at all, you're fully aware of that in order for you to make your decision as to whether you want to take that additional risk. There's one or two within security that I've got that have got a few second charges, but I would say 95% of mine is first charge backed. And that's deliberate. Really interesting to listen to. For those of you that aren't aware, the the kind of loans that Andrew is talking about are the loans that um, Source Capital manages. So Source Capital is a peer-to-peer lender, and that's exactly the structure that we have for our franchisees. If you want to find out more information about that, then you can go to our website, and you can go to the capital side of our website. There's lots of information and contact details on there if you want to learn a little bit more about it. Thank you very much for spending some time with us, Andrew. It's really interesting to to listen to how your investments have changed and what people might need to be aware of. Like you say, there's a huge amount of opportunities out there, a huge amount of different investments you can get into. So doing your homework is absolutely, absolutely critical. If we can help with that at all, then by all means, go to our website, get our contact details. But otherwise, Andrew has got such great experience and such a thorough due diligence process that uh, you've actually written a book which we've helped you to publish. Yes, right? it's, a, it's a Kindle book. Uh, so it's available uh, through Amazon Kindle and it's called Investing in Property Development Loans. And the core of it is a comprehensive due diligence checklist, which is what I use, what I've developed for myself in evaluating loan opportunities that I might go for. So you can find that on the Kindle store or you can come to us again, go to the Source Capital website and get the contact details and we'll point you in the right direction to get hold of that book. We have a webinar, the key differences between SAS and SIP pensions. If you'd like to be present on that webinar, again, you can go to our website and you can find the details on there. But thank you very much for your time, Andrew. It's always a pleasure. I'm sure in a couple of years' time, we'll think of another podcast to drag you on to. Wonderful. Thank you, Chris. But thanks very much. And thanks for listening to the Sourced Property Podcast. And we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Sourced Property Podcast.